<laughs> when we were setting up today. In the side room, I found in the box of cords and things a bell. And uh, first, the First Fruits of Zion team, in some of their audio teachings, have a bell that they ring when they mention extra-biblical sources or a traditional Jewish commentary. So I have a little bit of that for you today. So I thought, hey, what a perfect opportunity to use the bell. So I'll, uh, I'll make sure I, I ring myself in before I say certain things. How does that sound? Um, well, I'll be your tour guide again today and just take you interweaving through the material that we just read, starting with the book of Luke. If you want to turn to Luke with me, chapter 18. Uh, as I'd mentioned, there are several, there are quite a few stories and teachings and sayings of the Master in the book of Luke that aren't in the other two synoptic Gospels, the Gospels of Matthew and Mark. So I really enjoy reading Luke for that reason, and because there are lots of red letters all over the pages in, in the books of Luke, book of Luke also. And uh, Yeshua starts with oh, something I love about Yeshua. It's something like, as a teacher, that I really look up to him with. He wasn't like a super analytical, cut-and-dried person. I mean, there's a place for that in teaching, but Yeshua was a storyteller, and he was a master storyteller. If he had a point to make, instead of just telling people what he wanted to say, he'd tell them a story instead that would communicate what he wanted to say. And we we see that in a couple of these stories that illustrate his points. Um, The second one is the one I want to key in on. Uh, one, one of the things we've been focusing on as we've been reading through the Gospels is understanding their original Hebraic context, that these were written by Jewish individuals who thought in very Jewish ways and who communicated on that level too. And of course, they reflect our Jewish Messiah. And uh, there's a couple of elements in the story that I really value. And uh, I mean, I don't want to just look at a couple of the little cultural contextual things. It's a great story, just on a practical level, isn't it? Like, Man, we look at this and we're like, okay, I don't want to be like the tax collector. I don't want to be like the Pharisee. I want to be like the tax collector. I just want to have a simple heart to say, God, I need you, you know. Please, I need your mercy in my life. I don't want to be like the Pharisee who's stuck up and who thinks he's better than everybody else and who, who finds himself thanking God that he's superior to the other people in the, in the temple or wherever it was that they were praying. But I think this is a great story, even for those of us in the Messianic community who have discovered the riches of the Torah. Because for some people, they say, like, when they dis- discover the Hebrew roots of their faith, and when they reconnect with the Torah, they feel like they've been born again, again. Like, the word just so comes alive as you begin to experience the freedom of living it out. And it's such a, a time of revival for so many people. And it's, it's, it's easy sometimes in the Messianic community to think of ourselves as separate from the body of Christ or something other than the rest of the Christian community and say, you know, well, we have this and they don't. And we do things this way and they don't. And uh, it's just important to remember that the Torah is a spiritual entity. Yeshua is the living Torah. And Yeshua, as the living Torah, is something that we have in common with the greater body of Messiah. Uh, In the Christian community, many of the underlying principles of Torah are lived out and practiced. And we are in a generation where the Father is also restoring us to some of those physical expressions of the Torah. And I thank him for that, but one thing we want to be really careful about in the Messianic community is that we don't get the Pharisees' attitude or start talking about the rest of the body 
the way the Pharisee talked about the tax collector and everybody else. Heaven forbid. If anything, as we, as we, as we thank him, you know, we read the Torah and then we thank him because he's chosen us from all the peoples and given us his Torah. That is a very humbling thing to say, Father, you have given us more revelation. You have entrusted your written word to us. We are responsible for it now. And we are humbled that we are responsible as servants to, to make disciples, to model the scriptures, to, to reach out to the, to the broader Christian community and, and help them understand uh, the bigger picture of discipleship. So I, I, I find this is really relevant for us. Um, and there's something cool in here on a, on a, on a cultural level too. Uh, we'd been talking in the beginning of Luke about how the, uh, the Jewish tradition of prayer, some of the ancient synagogue liturgy, it surfaces in the first couple of chapters of Luke in some of the prophecies and the prayers that are uttered by the, the parents of uh, Yochanan the Immerser and then Yeshua himself. And we see this also in Luke chapter 18 in this story. Did you notice the physical action that accompanied the tax collector's repentant prayer? He was doing something that we don't generally do in church today. In verse, uh, in Luke 18, yes, verse 13 it says, the tax collector standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, Elohim be merciful to me the sinner. So we, we learn two things from this. Firstly, it was common to look up to heaven when praying. And I think that would be Easier if you're in the temple courtyards and you have the vast blue sky overhead. Then you, you, know, you look up and you pray. It's kind of tougher when you're in a gym. It's like, what's he doing looking out the skylight or you know, looking at the ceiling? It doesn't feel the same. But that's one thing. And the second one, Hannah, as you mentioned, is the main one that really jumped out at me. He was beating his breast. And uh, this is actually something that's done in the traditional Jewish prayers every day. And that's done in the synagogue on a weekly basis. And especially on fast days. Days where there are extra prayers prayed for grace. uh, Where there are special penitential prayers prayed. And I wanted to share a couple of those with you. Just to give you the context for why the tax collector was beating his breast. So I will ring the bell. And share with you a couple of things from the (laughs) Siddur. Okay. Yeah, ringing the bell. Okay, sounds like something maybe that would happen in public school too. Okay, so in the 18 Blessings Prayer, it's called the Shemona Esrei, it was composed by Ezra and the men of the Great Assembly in the beginning of the Second Temple Era. So we're talking about 2,400 years ago when the Jewish people came back from Babylon. There were, uh, the, the core of the, the Jewish liturgy was developed at that point. And they have these 18 little, little nugget prayers, and they cover most of the facets of spiritual life, not only on a personal level, but on a national level. And the, the um, blessing number five is a prayer for repentance, that he would bring us back to his Torah, that he would bring us near to his service, that he would influence us to return in complete repentance before him. And then blessing six, in Hebrew it's called the slicha, forgiveness. And uh, it says, it's a very simple prayer. It says, forgive us, Father, for we have erred. Pardon us, our King, for we've willfully sinned. For you pardon and forgive. Blessed are you, Lord, the gracious one who pardons abundantly. So that's something that a traditional Jew in Yeshua's time and today prays. And of course, in Yeshua's prayer that he taught us, we have a similar phrase, don't we? Uh, forgive, our, forgive us our sins or trespasses. So the interesting thing is the, the rubrics, 
that we see in this. And I learned the term rubrics from Daniel Lancaster. Uh, I think maybe people from a high church background are more familiar with it. It's the little like phrases that accompany um, the liturgy that say, do this at this point. So maybe if there's a point when you kneel or when you do whatever, then that's what the rubrics say. Um, maybe some little rubrics that we have in our liturgy is when we do the Baruch Shem Kavod, it's not scriptural, it's not scripturally part of the Shema, so we have it in small letter- letters and we say it a little quieter. That's Jewish tradition. Okay, yeah. So, but here's the interesting part of the rubrics. It says, strike the left side of the chest with the right fist while reciting the words erred and sinned. So generally a Jewish person would say, forgive us our father for we have erred. Pardon us our king for we have willfully sinned. And they, 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 they beat the breast as they say that. Oh, really? What does mea culpa mean? I have sinned. Oh. Isn't that interesting? Okay, in that, in that regard, the, the Catholic tradition is much closer to the original Jewish tradition of prayer than our evangelical background. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. So, I mean, you know, you could look at that and say, oh, they just, it's part of the rubrics? They say to do that? That means they all do it just because they have to, going through the motions? Well, not necessarily. Um, it's very possible to pray prayers like this and to do, to do things like this from the heart. I mean, this is a prayer that I pray every morning. And you know what? It feels really good to say, like to stop and actually to beat my chest a couple times as I'm saying, Father, I, I pray for your forgiveness. I have sinned. Um, so anyway, that's, that's an example of how this is a part of the, the, uh, the Jewish tradition. It's something we may want to consider incorporating in our own personal prayers and confession times, just like the tax collector. Just to see how that feels. For me, anyway, it helps me. I feel a real sincerity when I'm doing that. You know. So here, here's another example. Uh, did, it, did you notice that one of the Pharisees' items of piety on his uh, resume was he fasted twice a week? Now this is interesting because in the Jewish tradition, there are certain days during the week when if you were going to fast, they would be the optimal days to fast. Uh, even today, Orthodox Jewish people will often fast on Mondays and Thursdays. And they get that all the way back from the Pharisaic era. Uh, there's another section in here that describes that. Uh, it's a section called Tachanun, which is like um, extra prayers for grace, basically. Uh, the Hebrew word would usually be translated in English as supplications. So where Paul is talking about prayers and supplications, it's like prayers and then extra prayers for grace. Tachanunim. Can everybody say Tachanunim? Yeah, so that's what it's talking about. And in the notes here, it mentions the Monday and Thursday uh, tradition. I'll just, I'll just read it here. It's brief, and I think it's uh, enlightening. On Mondays and Thursdays, the Tachanun service is aug- augmented with additional supplications prior to and following the falling on the face. That's another thing that's done in the synagogue for special prayer times. You fall on your face. Man, that's not something we usually do in evangelical churches either, hey? Can you, the whole congregation, boom, you fall on your face. I mean... I don't know, that would hurt. I think a lot of people would be knocking themselves out on pews and stuff, you know. But, you know, I, I, I like that. I know, I know that it's been very meaningful for me sometimes to get on my face in prayer. And then it says, uh, The choice of these two days, that is Monday and Thursday, for special prayers is based on one of the earliest events in Israel's national history. And by the way, I'm ringing the bell here. Okay, this, is, this isn't necessarily biblical. This is Jewish tradition that helps us understand the Jewish world and also helps us understand the Jewish world of Yeshua's time, Okay. According to the Midrashic tradition, Moses ascended Mount Sinai to receive the second tablets on Thursday, the first day of the sixth month, or Elul, and descended 40 days later on Monday, Yom Kippur. 
Since those were days when God accepted Israel's repentance for the sin of the golden calf and demonstrated his love for Israel with the greatest of all gifts, the Torah, in the form of the second tablets, Monday and Thursday remain days of divine mercy. That's recorded in Bava, comma 82a in the Bavli and Tosefta. Uh, Ezra instituted the rabbinical courts should convene on Monday and Thursday. And... And uh, correlatively, Kabbalistic literature teaches that on these days, the heavenly court judges man. So in, in the Second Temple era, the, uh, the courts would sit to judge cases on Mondays and Thursdays. And they, they understood that to have a spiritual connotation also. Uh, consequently, extra supplications are introduced into the Tachanun, recited each Monday and Thursday. These supplications must be said while standing, and, because of their nature, with great feeling. So this, this is just an interesting example of, uh, of that. Anyway, in the Takanun prayers, there are certain places where, where the chest will be beat. And uh, like I mentioned, that's why Monday and Thursday are traditionally fast days. There's one more prayer I just wanted to highlight for a moment. It's at the end of the, uh, the weekday morning prayer service, Shacharit it's called. And uh, it's called Vidui, or Confession. And... Uh, as you can see, it's a, it's a whole page. And it's actually quite, when it comes to just categorizing sin and listen, listening sin, it's quite uh, comprehensive. And it literally lists sins from A to Z, or in English, I guess we'd say from A to Z, um, in Hebrew, from Aleph to Tav. They have a certain sin that begins with each letter, and they list them all in there. And... Uh, and, it, and, and it would, it, in English, it reads something like this. We've become guilty... We've betrayed, we've robbed, we've spoken slander, um, and the, the, the chest is beat for each one of these. We, we've caused perversion, we've caused wickedness, we have sinned willfully, we've extorted, we've accused falsely, and, and it goes on in that way. And it's actually, it's a very touching prayer, just totally casting, casting oneself on the mercy of God, recognizing that the Jewish people have no merit of their own, uh, pleading for his grace. That's a, that's a meaningful prayer. So anyway, I just wanted to uh, share that with you because it explains these two concepts here of you know, beating the chest in, in confession, penitential prayer, and also the concept of fasting on Mondays and Thursdays. Now here is something interesting. I'm going to be ringing the bell here again. Uh, I I had read you a quote several weeks ago from the Didache. Uh, It's the oldest Christian literature that we have on record outside of the New Testament itself. Uh, The Didache is Greek for the teaching. It's short for the teaching of the Twelve Apostles. The full name is the teaching of the Twelve Apostles of the Lord based on words of the Lord and on the Lord's ways. And uh, as I'd mentioned, if someone comes at this from a Greek... uh, Worldview, some of this stuff doesn't make sense because it's very pro-Torah. It even talks about how you should take on as much of the dietary laws as possible. Uh, take on as much of the yoke of the master as you can. And it has certain Hebraisms in it that um, people who only read Greek can't make sense of. Anyway, here's an interesting thing from early Christian history. And I'm going to read it to you, and you tell me what you think of this. In chapter 8 of the Didache... Which is, this is like within a century of Messiah's ascension, right? It says, But as for your fasts, let them not coincide with the hypocrites. For they fast on the second and fifth days of the week. But you should fast on the fourth and fifth days. <laughs> what do you think of that? First and fifth? I'll read it again. Fourth and 
dedicate chapter 8, verse 1. As for your fasts, let them not coincide with the hypocrites, for they fast on the second and fifth days of the week, but you should fast on the fourth and fifth days. Yeah. So apparently, even early on in Christian history, uh, there was this, this polarization between the new Yeshua movement and the Pharisaic tradition. So they said, well, we are something other than the Pharisaic tradition, and we don't want to look like them because they're all hypocrites. So if they fast on Mondays and Thursdays, heaven forbid that we should do the same. We'll fast on, when, what is it, on fourth and fifth days, Wednesdays and Thursdays, yeah. I don't know, the Thursday day is still the same. I don't know about you, but fasting for two days in a row is not a very attractive option. I'd rather fast on Mondays and Thursdays. No, well, just because you don't want to do it as the hypocrites. And then I'll just read you the next section too because it's interesting. Uh, Verse 2 says, And don't pray as the hypocrites do, but pray as the Lord commanded in his gospel. And then it has the Lord's prayer, including the clause about thine is the kingdom. No, it doesn't say thine is the kingdom, just for thine is the glory and the power forever. And then in verse 3 it says, three times in a day, pray in this fashion. So we see that early in, the, in Christian history, they recommended praying three times a day, which is classic Jewish tradition in terms of prayer. But just pray, pray the, the prayer, quote, as the Lord commanded in his gospel. So, some interesting history for you with that. Wow. <laughs> Good luck to me on covering all my material today. We'll forget that. But we will cover some of the highlights. How does that sound? (laughs) Good. Okay, so uh, in chapter 18, verse 15 of the book of Luke, we see the parents bringing babies to Yeshua. I thought that was cool because a couple weeks ago we talked about Leviticus 12, the motherhood chapter, and about ways that we can strategically pray for babies. Well, here's another interesting fact. Yeshua is Hamakom. He is the place. He is omnipresent. He's everywhere. How do you come to him? By faith. So is he still available for us to bring babies to so he can lay his hands on them and bless them? He certainly is. So remember that as you're praying for for newborn babies or for children or for whoever. You can go to the master in faith just like these parents were bringing their children. Or just like, uh, remember the paralytic dude and his four buddies, they brought him to the master and the house was so packed, they went up on the roof and they let the guy down through a hole they tore in the roof. I don't know if they had a chainsaw with them or whatever. But, you know, we can do that in the spirit. We can take people to Yeshua in faith and say, Yeshua, I pray that you would lay your hands on this person, that you would touch this person and bless this person. Heal this person. So that's a, that's a great picture of that right there. And uh, that's something I do for Tirza every week. It's something I'm, I'm, I'm learning as a new Abba. Okay. Uh, in the story of Zakai, Zacchaeus, in Luke 19, Yeshua fin- finishes it by using an interesting term. Uh, Luke 19, 9. He calls Zacchaeus something. He says, Today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. He too is a Ben Avraham, is the Hebrew, Ben Avraham. Now, do you think, it, it kind of sounds like that term meant something to Yeshua. Like he said that, but it sounds like there was more to it than just saying, yes, this guy's a, a son of Abraham. I mean, he was talking to a, a whole crowd of people who were the children of Abraham, right? Well, the cool thing about that term is it means you're part of the family. It means you're, quote, one of us. Uh, 
It means that you are a member of the covenant that the God of Israel made with Abraham. And this gives us a better understanding of Paul when Paul several times wrote to congregations in the exile that were composed predominantly of non-Jewish people. And these people didn't get circumcised. They didn't go through the conversion ritual to Judaism. And yet, what did he say to them? He said, you are B'nai Avraham. You are sons of Abraham. You are daughters of Abraham. Man, like, in Paul's time, that statement had smashed to it. That was, that was revolutionary, really. And that is still true today. And I, I, I honestly wish that the mainline Messianic Judea, Jewish movement would take Paul's words to heart. That believers from the nations are just as much B'nai Avraham, just as much members of the covenant, just as much part of the family, and just as much people of the covenant as, quote, Jewish believers. Um... Yeah, I'm not going to get into that. But this is just a little example of that. And uh, I like it. Here here we are, a room full of B'nai Avraham, a room full of the children of Abraham. Um, At the end of Luke 19, Yeshua is bawling. He's crying his eyes out and talking to a city, the city of Jerusalem. And... He predicts the catastrophe that's going to come on the city, which does befall it 40 years later, approximately. In um, Luke 19, 43, he talks about how your enemies will throw up a barricade against you. They'll surround you and hem you in on every side. They'll level you to the ground. And they won't leave in you one stone upon another. Why? Here's the kicker. Because you didn't recognize the time of your visitation. So we, we, we learn three key things from this. This is strategic kingdom stuff. Number one, there are times when the master visits places. So that's, let's, let's say this is number one, that God doesn't just deal with individuals. He de- deals with cities. He deals with geographical loca- like areas and the peoples who live there. That's the first thing we learn. Number two, we learn that he sometimes visits cities and geographical areas in specific windows of time. And the third thing we learn from this is when people don't recognize him when he sends people, when they don't embrace what he is doing, the results can be disastrous for that city or that area. And so those are some strategic things that we can be praying for Prince Albert, for Saskatoon, for our province and country, that we will recognize the time of our visitation. When the Father sends a message when he, when he moves by his spirit, when he's, when he's visiting an area, we can be praying that we will recognize the time of our visitation. So, and Father, we do pray that for Prince Albert. We pray that for Saskatoon. We, we pray that for the body of Messiah in this province and country, Father. We thank you that you, by your grace, are going to uh, continue to, to lead us in that direction. We praise you for it, Yahweh. But I want to look at the Moedim for a couple of minutes, the appointed times in Leviticus 23. No, that's good. I actually didn't know that about George Bush Jr. and how that, that storm hit his, his house directly thereafter. Wow. Let's look at Leviticus 23 together. Uh, Leviticus 21 and 22 are really cool. Um, there's some great prince, underlying principles there, but they don't actually apply, I think, to any of us because as far as I know, none of us are descended from Aaron. Uh, we're, not, we're not members of the Levitical priesthood and also there's no temple standing. So it's an interesting example of uh, material in the Torah that doesn't immediately apply to us. But Leviticus 23, now that's another story. Wow, there's a lot of material in here that applies to each and every one of us. 
So let's look at that together. Um, you will find parallel material to Leviticus 23 in Deuteronomy 16. Uh, it lists the Moedim, the appointed times in Deuteronomy 16 also. And it actually gives some additional detail. And also in Numbers chapter 28 and 29. Numbers 28 and 29 are mostly the offerings that are to be uh, given on those days. But uh, we're just going to look at 23 today. Uh, let's, let's just look at some key notes here. Number one, whose appointed times are these? Let's see, Leviticus chapter 23, verse 2. Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, The Jews' appointed times, which you shall proclaim as holy convocations. My appointed time. The Jews' appointed times are these. Is that what it says? <laughs> that is correct. Thank you for beeping me out. No, this, this is a common fallacy out there. This is, this is something that a lot of people, when you talk about doing Passover or the Day of Trumpets or, or any one of the biblical festivals, people will say, well, that's, those are the feasts of the Jews. You know, I'm a Gentile Christian and therefore those don't apply to me. Um, that's one line of reasoning. Another that's often comes up is to say, well, those things were done away with or those things were for a past dispensation or those things, it's spiritual now, right? We experience the uh, spiritual reality of things. And it's true in the gospel and in the new covenant experience, we do experience the spiritual reality, but that doesn't negate the physical aspect of the word of God. <laughs> so anyway, this is, this is a great example of that. Uh, we talked several months ago in installment one of our Sinking with the Creator of the Universe series about how Paul continued to do the biblical festivals for his whole life. Uh, the book of Acts and several of Paul's letters indicate that very clearly. So that's the context for understanding certain enigmatic expressions in Paul's letters that could be interpreted, interpreted in one of a couple ways. Uh, we also know, of course, that our Master Yeshua celebrated all of the biblical festivals every year of his life. Wow! So I want to give you a, a little, a little uh, something that I like to do. When, when, I'm, when you're studying the Word and learning about these things, just stop and imagine Yeshua as a little boy celebrating each of these festivals, going up to Jerusalem for them, praying during them. I don't know, have you ever wondered, like, when Yeshua would go off in the morning by himself and pray during the festival of Sukkot, say, what would he pray? What scriptures would he be thinking about? You know, how would he express himself to his father? For me, anyway, doing that really helps my celebration of these festivals come to life. Because then I realize I am following in the footsteps of my Savior when I celebrate these days. So, we can read this as Yahweh's appointed times. You can also read that as Yeshua's appointed times because they belong to Him. He is the fulfillment of them. And uh, they all point to Him. That's the first thing that we can note. Uh, the King James Version renders this term appointed time, which is the Hebrew moed, plural moedim, as feasts. I don't like that translation. Uh, this doesn't have anything to do with feasting as such. Although for any of you who have celebrated the biblical festivals, there does seem to be a, quite a bit of feasting that goes on, isn't there? <laughs> okay, here's the one, po here's the one point though where translating moed as feast falls flat. If you consistently translate moed or appointed time as feast, then Yom Kippur is a feast. And how many of you know that Yom Kippur is not a feast? <laughs> Yom Kippur is a fast. <laughs> oh, maybe we can say we feast on the revelation of the Son of God during that day, and we feast spiritually on the atonement that he provided for us, but calling it a feast just doesn't work. So that's something to learn. Uh, it's cool how the very first Moed, appointed time that's listed, is the weekly Shabbat. 
We are actually in one of these things right now. It started yesterday evening when the sun went down. What, about 8 o'clock or something? Isn't that cool? The Bible is still alive. We are living in the Bible right now. (laughs) Yeah, I love it. And uh, I wanted to read you a a short quote. Uh, It's actually something I just read yesterday. And, okay, it's, it's by an author named Brian Tracy. Um, he's an author that I enjoy reading off and on. He is a sales trainer and business consultant. And he talks about a lot of basic things about communication, leadership, how things work in the business world, um, even just on a personal level, how to, how to be effective, how to, uh, how to set goals and achieve them. And uh, I'm reading a book right now called Focal Point. And... There's something really cool in here that is totally about Shabbat. I wanted to share it with you. One of the things he's talking about is not letting your work consume your life. Uh, how you need to make time for family and for personal growth. And uh, under the heading, Six Steps to Doubling Your Income and Doubling Your Time Off, uh, number four is kind of cool. He says, Decide today to take at least one full day each week off work during which you spend time exclusively on your personal pursuits. During this time off, refuse to do anything associated with work. Do not read, make telephone calls, catch up on your correspondence, work on your computer, or do anything else work-related. Let your brain completely recharge and rejuvenate by turning your attention to something apart from the work you do during the week. Now this is from a, a business consultant. But how many of you here, like the Torah principle, all over that? No, as far as I know, he's not. But in a personal conversation with him, he told me that he does support Israel. So I think he may have an evangelical background. I'm not sure. But anyway, I just thought, man, like this guy's in touch with the halacha of Shabbat more than some of us. (laughs) And uh, he didn't mention Saturday in there. But you know, if he just mentioned doing this on Saturday, wow. Just be Bible truth right there. But anyway... I thought that's 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 a great that's great wisdom in there. We just see the wisdom of the Father even in, in people just recognizing those principles. Um, there are a couple common elements in each of the Moedim. It's actually amazing. It talks about when to do these things, but then it doesn't actually say much of what to do. Did you notice that? Like okay, on Passover it says, like do the Seder. On unleavened bread, it says, eat unleavened bread. On Shavuot, it says nothing, actually, except for a couple common elements that all of the Moedim have in common, but it doesn't have any distinctive ones listed here. We'll go over, we'll go over the common elements in a second. On Yom Teruah, the day of trumpets, it just says, remember and blow trumpets. On Yom Kippur, it just says, humble yourself, which traditionally is understood to be a day of fasting. On Sukkot, it says, live in sukkahs if you're a resident of Israel. It's mandatory if you live as a resident in Israel. If you are in the exile, then it's optional, which all of the Inuit are very happy about, I think. All the Torah-observant Inuit people. And finally, on Sukkot, it also says to take four four species of, of trees and wave them. I'm just giving you a really brief overview here because we do the Moedim in this congregation. Uh, we have regular teachings on these things. So I'm not going to go into detail too much with them, but I just wanted to point that out. Now, here's, here's, here's the thing about these. There's, there has to come a point in each one of our lives where we 
embrace the Torah for ourselves or we don't embrace it at all. Like eventually, it has to become your personal inheritance. It has to become your treasured possession. It has to come to the point where if you were stranded on a desert island, you would do the Moedim all by yourself. Even if there was nobody else there doing them. Uh, If you were locked in prison and it was just you in your cell, you would do the Moedim. Because you have a personal commitment to do the mitzvot that our Messiah did. So, you know, this is a great environment to learn about the Moedim, to grow in our observance. But ultimately, my hope for each one of us is that we grab hold of the Torah for ourselves. So that it doesn't matter whether there's a congregation in Prince Albert or not. It doesn't matter where we are or what our situation is. We will do the festivals and nothing and no one will stop us. That's the ideal. So I just encourage you, go home, look at each one of these days, continue to study the biblical calendar and get ferocious about it. You know, just take hold of this because this is your inheritance. And uh, that's, that's I, I, I believe, an invitation from the Father. Now, what I didn't mention is the two things that each one of the festivals have in common, elements that uh, these, these, uh, these days have in common. And they're very simple. Number one, don't work. So on a very practical level, take the day off work if at all possible. I, I do understand that, you know, we are living in Egypt on a spiritual level, that some of us do have to work for Pharaoh still, even though we know who our ultimate master is. And so sometimes that's not feasible for some people. But if at all possible, we should take these days off work. We should plan ahead, take the day off work, so we can spend quality time with Messiah, so we can gather together as as his people. That's the first thing. Just don't work on the festival days. The number two thing that they all have in common is have a holy convocation. Hebrew is Mikra Kodesh. And we're not going to go into the details, but that Hebrew word for convocation has four different connotations. Convocation has four connotations. Uh, The Hebrew word is kara, and it means to invite. So it's something that you invite people to. Kara also means to call on the name of Yahweh in prayer. So it's a day for prayer. Kara means to read, because when you read, you're publicly and vocally reading the Holy Scriptures. So it's a day for reading the scriptures on a public, in a public uh, venue. And uh, number four, kara means to preach. It means to cry out in the sense of preaching. So it's a day to preach to each other and to hear good, solid teaching on the word. Those are the four things that, that, uh, that we can be doing on a regular basis when we have a holy convocation. That's all inherent in the Hebrew word and the understanding of it. Can you believe you can get so many layers of meaning from just the Hebrew word kara? Man, wow. Um, you could translate it K-A-R-A, kara, but it's the Hebrew root letters kuf, resh, and kara. I think it's aleph, yeah. Yes, it is aleph. So anyway, those are the four things we can do. Uh, there are three places in Leviticus 23 where Yahweh explicitly says something that is notable. And it's something that we stand for as a congregation. It's part of the banner that we fly. Um, in regards to Shavuot, the festival of weeks that is going to be happening 20 days from now, um, in reference to Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and fasting on that day. And in regards to one other festival that I can't see off the top of my head, it says, this is a law forever. Achok olam um, NASB renders it a, a perpetual statute. This is something throughout your generations. Right? 
So for those who would say, well, this refers to a past dispensation. Well, this was done away with uh, at Messiah's coming. Um, for those who would say, well, that doesn't apply to us anymore, I would say, haven't you read? Haven't you read Leviticus 23? It says straight up, this is a law forever. This is for the people of Israel throughout their generations. And for people who would say, well, you know, I'm a Gentile, so that doesn't apply to me because I'm not part of Israel. And say, haven't you read Paul? I mean, man, it's, it's all over the Bible. Paul says very clearly, you are no longer a stranger to the commonwealth of Israel. You are a child of Abraham. You're part of the family. This is your inheritance. So, Chok? Uh, Olam. Chok Olam, yeah. So we will leave it at that today. Um, the one thing we'll, we'll finish with is in Leviticus 23, 15 and 16, it talks about counting the Omer, and that's what we're doing right now. We're doing this mitzvah, this commandment, because we love the Father. This is, the, one of the, this is like the Father's love language. And every day we count the Omer, it's a way of telling him, I love you, Abba. I'm keeping your word. So let's just continue to do that. And we'll notice also that it doesn't just say count, because then we could say, oh, well, someone somewhere is counting. It doesn't say to count l'cha, count for yourself, because if we try as individuals, we'll usually end up forgetting or getting the wrong day. The Hebrew says, count l'chem, count for yourselves. And what that teaches us is that counting the Omer is a community project. It's a group initiative. And that's why we have good theological grounds for our favorite question during this 50-day season. What day of the Omer is it? (laughs) So, great. Man, I'm really looking forward to to Shavuot. We are going to have some great times just celebrating and getting into the Word and discovering some of the depths of what it's all about. I'm really looking forward to doing the fall festivals together, too. We haven't done that yet as a congregation. And uh, I didn't mention this, but did you guys know that today is our six-month anniversary as a congregation. We have been meeting since October 31st, and it has been a full half year already. So praise God for that, hey? Thank you, Father. Shalom, I'm Izzy Avraham, and thank you for joining me for this talk. I delivered these messages live during the years I was leading a congregation. They're now hosted by my Hebrew school, Holy Language Institute at holylanguage.com. If you're interested in the talks I've done since then, or if you'd just like to say thank you for these teachings, become a member at holylanguage.com.